0: All right, I'm going to try to discipline myself to keep my word. <laughs> it's always a good thing. Uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond and ask questions from the previous week if you've had time to meditate on it or had anything come up. Um, I did tell you you could email me or actually message me somewhere during the week if you had something that would help me prepare, um, but I'm willing to accept those even on the site. If there's something, I know you didn't have the written information um, there in front of you, but we certainly had a a couple of weeks of content that is there before you, essentially. uh, We've actually developed it a little bit better, or a little bit more. You can always do that interactively better than in writing. Um, And so you've had a couple of weeks to think about it uh, from last time. And just wanted to see if there's any questions or challenges, or I don't get that, or is this something you're going to tell us later? (laughs) Um, At this point, that's probably a lot of it we're going to get to. I did a really strong overview to try to challenge you. And and just to jog your memory a little bit, we talked about the um, attributes of God. And do the attributes of God define who God is, or are they something God possesses? Which is very different. That's not a semantic issue, as I wrote in the chapter. It is a matter of crucial difference. If you believe that the attributes of God define God, then as soon as it would appear that He violates one of those, or that He is not infinite in one of those, then it appears that he ceases to be God. And you'll hear people say that. If God isn't holy all the time, everywhere, then he isn't God. They don't usually use holy. Usually they say sovereign. If God isn't sovereign over everything all the time, then he isn't God, which which betrays something about their definition of God. They define God by his attributes instead of having the attributes something that God, differently defined, possesses. So I'm not not defined by the attributes I possess because I can control them. Okay, And so as a young person, I might have been defined as being hot-tempered. Can you believe that? course um hot tempered and so oh, he's hot well is that now i can't do anything but be hot tempered or is that something i can control and can even change and so that's the difference is a define who i am or is it an attribute that i might have in my personality or in my person that i need to address and so that's the distinction that we were making last week. Did you have any comments, questions? All right. That was some serious, scary stuff I talked about last two weeks ago. I think from your reaction last week, the scariest thing was to you: is does God grant us privacy? A lot of you hadn't considered that that might be the case and what that entails, if that is is the case. And we're going to be addressing that way down the road. Um, I actually haven't even written that chapter yet, so that's what I'm kind of back here. Any responses? Okay. All right, so let's... I'm ready to press on. It gives me more time now. I'm trying to give you about 10 to 15 minutes um, to ask and challenge and to give me feedback. Okay. I have a simple question for you. Um, How did your relationship with God begin? How did your relationship with God begin? You believe it was, so your encounter with God where you, was just the idea that there is a God. Okay? So what did that, how did that come to you? Well, this is the distinction because, yeah, for many of you, you were raised in a Christian home. Some of you came to Christ as adults. And so there's going to be, but how do we initiate, what is the, the initial engagement that we have to start a relationship with God. Where does it start? That's where it, I'm trying to get the process of your salvation where you come to that decision. Okay? Before coming to the decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ, you encountered God somewhere. Something about God or information or that required something of you. Yes? Yes? Okay, what do we teach children? We start there, often, right? At creation, so that they know who we're dealing with. We're dealing with a God that created the heavens and the earth. And so we go through, we teach them the six days of creation, the seventh day rested, right? So on a child level, that's where we often begin. Um, What about on an adult level? How many of you came to know Christ as an adult? Real quick, one, two, three, four... Four, okay four or five so about a third all right um, so what about on adult level is that how we is that how you were approached or did you already acknowledge that there was a God whether he created or not wasn't a factor or maybe it was okay based upon what information Okay, that I was doing wrong things, but where do we get the code that's what's right and wrong? How did you know that you were wrong? Okay, so someone introduced you to that information. Okay, to the scripture. And that's where they took you first? That you're a sinner? Okay. So we're introduced to our condition as being a broken relationship, I assume, with God. Okay? And you can't. All right, so we're confronted with a couple of things there. From I'm trying to draw this from your testimonies um, that we're encountering a God that we know has a standard that we need to meet, and so you are encountering the holiness of God on some level, and so that is a concern. But also the matter of of uh, I'm not pleasing to God. Somehow it Matters to you that you don't please God in our life, and that has to be a derived information, in other words, someone has to reveal that to you. And he mentioned the person of Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit engages that information. What is the instrument the Holy Spirit uses is God's Word, all right? That's the sword of the Spirit to divide asunder bone from arrow, soul from spirit, and so the. Word of God being implemented by the Spirit of God convict us of our sin and the fact that we are displeasing to God is really the beginning of the journey uh, at some point. Whether that's in a formal way or an informal way, uh, the informal way is through a guilty conscience. And that's why guilty conscience is so important, it's so precious. That you, when your children feel guilty, I don't want them to say, I don't want you to tell them, I don't tell them, that's okay, because it's not okay. That's a good thing, if you're feeling guilty, you should feel guilty, is usually what I tell them. You you should feel bad. Um, Not because I want them to feel really bad, but because I want them to understand that guilt is an admission of error. Okay? Now, um, so what are you going to do about it? You're a sinner displeasing to God. Either ignore it or take it. What action can you take? How? Okay, change your ways. That is true of every religion on the earth. Right, so I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to try to, I'm going to, it's, you know, December 31st, so that's a good time. And so I'm going to commit myself to being a better person. Does that accomplish the goal? Are you now pleasing to God? No. Believe in what? There is a God? You already admitted that. You need someone to rescue you from your condition because you can't, you keep failing. So if I want to change my life, I try to do it independently of God. I try to say, okay, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be nicer. I'm going to be law-abiding, I'm not going to drink no more, I'm not going to cuss anymore, I'm, I'm going to be a model citizen, and then when you fail, um, even if you don't fail harshly, you, you start to elevate yourself and you're in worse state than you began with. So you're in a miserable condition, so what do you need? All right, so you need help, so now you acknowledge you need help, so now what? All right, you guys are really indirect, and I'm a very direct person. You have to acknowledge Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? That to get out of your sin condition, you have to accept Christ as your Savior and Lord. I don't know why we beat around the bush to get to that point. Okay? Nothing else essentially initiates your your relationship with God. God has initiated his relationship with you, but you haven't initiated your relationship with God until you respond by faith, believing in Jesus Christ as your savior and lord amen okay that is critically important in your experience with god all that you said in terms of feeling bad about being a sinner everyone in the world feels bad when they do bad things it's called conscience it is a universal gift of god to man and we've talked about that that everyone has a moral code and and eventually, if they keep breaking it, they can dull their conscience, and God will turn them over to a reprobate mind in Romans, but everyone has one. So that's a universal experience, so I don't build my relation with God on that, because obviously these other people don't have a relation with God. That is the basis of every Hindu, every Muslim, every Mormon, every uh, pick the religion, Any, all of them. Even in uh, spiritism, that is the basis. I'm going to pursue this and try to ease my conscience and be a better person. Um, And they're going to pursue those gods. And so in, in a right relationship with God, we are going to quickly get to a relationship with Jesus Christ. If we do not, we're going to fail, 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 fail. And even if that's humanism, and I want to uh, believe in myself, and that's where a lot of people are at, or nihilism, I don't believe in anything, which isn't really true. Um, they just It's a deformed humanism because they've failed themselves so many times. And so when we come to this, we say, well, there's something distinct in my relationship with God that is not universal, and that uh, I see universally, everybody wants to become a better person, they make New Year's resolutions, they, they say, oh, I'm never going to do that again, they join, you know, AA, they want to get help, they go to therapists, right, So you have psychotherapy involved, we're going to fix all your problems, so you'll be a well-adjusted person. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Are you a well-adjusted person? What does that entail, becoming well-adjusted? It's not just chiropractic. I'm talking about psychologically. What does that mean? Well-adjusted. Yeah, you've just tweaked yourself so that you're Society is more tolerant of you. You've adjusted to society's expectations. But if society degrades, what does it mean to be well-adjusted? You degrade right with it. And that's what we've seen. And so am I well-adjusted? Well, that, that means that I was wrong and I had to be corrected. That adjustment is a correction. So they're trying to correct people's behavior and then through behavior modification, depending on what school of psych they're in, whether it's Freudian or some of the other ones. Um, And they want to uh, have you a well-adjusted person that you can engage in life um, and either rationalize or behaviorally uh, approach it and (coughs) not... Fall into depression or any other weird disorder. But at this point, in our society disorders are being normalized. So to be a well adjusted person now is to be bizarre, right? Because we've normalized everything except for normal historically. Okay? So we're coming to God through Jesus Christ. This is our dependency and this is where our interaction with God begins. To get to that, we went through a knowledge of our sin, but the whole world knows that. It's a a universal fact that they all recognize that because they all have a conscience. And so conviction is taking that to the step of realizing that I've offended God and that I am without hope, without God's help. And that brings us to Jesus Christ. And so in your relationship with God, it really, while Holy Spirit brought conviction, that's also a universal activity of God. It does not require anything of you yet. My question was, where did your relationship with God begin? And it began when you encountered Jesus Christ full of faith. That you trusted in him. That begins your relationship with God. It did not begin God's relationship with you. Right? When did God's relationship with you begin? From the womb. He knew you in the womb. And so he he says he'll convict the world of sin and righteous of judgment. So, who did he die for? Everyone, the world. And so, he has initiated the relationship with everyone in the world. But the question was, how did you gain a relationship with him? And that's really a response question. And I say, Pastor, where is this all going with this challenge today? We're going to start where our knowledge relationally with God starts. Not our knowledge about God, I make that very clear distinction, I think, even in the chapter one that I gave you. I'm not talking about information about God. I'm talking about a relationship with God, and that begins with Jesus Christ. When I encounter Christ, and I place my faith there, I have initiated in a relationship with God. And so, while I have a lot of information about God, I really don't know him in a personal manner until I engage or interact with Jesus Christ. He is the one that you must deal with. Will I follow him or will I ignore him? Will I accept him or will I reject him? Will I go his way or my way or that guy's way or Muhammad's way? Um, We are encountered with a Savior and now we have a choice. And so this is where your relationship with God really begins. And if you don't have that, all the other information about God is of what value to you very little it is some value cuz it you're, you can still God can still use that knowledge to further convict you but i've encountered a lot of people with a lot of information about God who are extraordinarily antagonistic towards the concept of christianity including theological professors and some of our liberal Seminaries like Harvard Seminary and places like that who are undermining everything, even while they claim to have vast knowledge of it all. So, what are you doing with Jesus Christ? So, Jesus Christ is our first and primary contact with God on a personal level. Okay, do I have other contact with the Father prior to my contact with Jesus Christ? Yes. But it's not personal. It's universal. Okay, so creation itself. Does it declare God's attributes? Okay, let's go to Romans. Romans chapter 1. This should be a passage you're very familiar with. Verse eighteen is where we're going to pick up. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, as the word added, his invisible somethings, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because though they knew God they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And professing be wise, they, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. Okay? I just want to inject, interject something that I said this morning from that passage. Do you notice that the attitude of the people who rebel against God's revelation is one of unthankfulness. Remember I talked about that we have, that if we have lack gratitude, that we will not endure, and that's why we need to teach our children to be thankful. Because if they think they're entitled, right? Do you hear about entitlements these days? Um, an attitude of entitlement uh, will never lead you to God. It is the humble, thankful heart that will be led to Christ and will endure. So everybody sees the qualities of God in created order. But because they're not thankful for everything God created around them, they don't seek him out and they pervert it, that information. And so um, God has extended himself But the question is, when do we really know God on a personal level? That's an impersonal level. We are seeing his power and Godhead. What's the relationship we have with power and Godhead? Those are the two listed there. Well, yeah, is power personal? Do you think of power as a personal thing? No, you're not really being encountered with a person that wants to know you, love you, and engage with you. Can I see his power, his transcendency? Yes, I can see those in created order. But that tells me there's a creator, but that doesn't tell me that creator wants to fellowship with me. Does it? And so I see his power. I see his Godhead that is, the, the divineness of it all, but I'm not in relationship with him. But rather, these are information that are to lead me to seek out what does God want. But they do not initiate my relationship with God. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And so, when you go through the scriptures in the Old Testament, and you see people hearing God's voice, when you see them walking in the garden, when you see them uh, saying, I have seen the Lord, when you, when you hear that and you see that engagement where God appears to them, when God has a meal with them, when God's voice is heard, when, the, when there's fire on the mountain, um, this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ that they are engaging with. This is the one who reveals God to man, right? Not God as a divine entity of power, but rather as God as a person who wants to know you. Not know about you, but to know you on a relational basis. So, when we want to talk about how do I know God, that's really the question here. What do I know about God? We can begin by all this knowledge that we have about him, but that's where most every theologian starts. And it gets us in trouble. Here's why. Because we're not thinking about the fact that he is someone to relate to. He is personal. And so we talked about a definition two weeks ago, and I have that in the chapter there, how do I define God? Anybody have that page? It's like, Four? Page four? Five? How do you define how do I define God? Any ideas? I know you just got it this morning, so you haven't memorized it like I have. Self existent personal being. I think I used one other term too. And the word and the name is I am. The self existent personal being. And so, God is not impersonal. He is not just power. And you'll hear people talk about not only the Father, but even the Spirit being like this power. Most Pentecostals talk about Spirit not as a person, but as a power, as a force. Like the force be with you kind of thing. Okay? And so, we define God as this personal being, but all we're doing is studying all the information about him. Okay? And so, was George Washington a person? Are you sure? Yeah. We have all these signs. George Washington's like, Yeah, if you've been to Boston, any of those places, George Washington walked here. His, his horse doo-dooed right there, you know, and uh, whatever. Um, okay, was he a real person? How do you know? Have any of you met him? And where'd those come from? Pictures? They didn't have photography back then. Paintings, Paintings. okay. Yeah, that is a picture, I guess. All right, so you are trusting others who had met him. Not only his friends, or supposed friends, or, or professed friends, but even his enemies, right? Did the British engage with George Washington? Yeah, so they acknowledge his existence too, all right? And so we have all of this evidence, all right? So you know a lot of information about George Washington. What was he like? Well, you don't really know. You know what other people know about what he's like, but you don't know what he's like because you've never met him. And this is the condition of most people with regard to God. They don't really know God. But when we come to Jesus Christ, we have an invitation to let him into our life. Right? What does he do? I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens to me, I will come in. And what happens? We will dwell together. We'll commune together. We'll get to know each other. You see, Jesus Christ is where we first know God. Not know about God. We first know about God as creator from creation. Okay? But that's impersonal. And I'm I'm not going to start there. I want to start where you personally got to know God. And that has to be through Jesus Christ. Any other avenue is false. It has to be Jesus Christ. For no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Father, he has revealed him. So Jesus is the revealer of God. And that's why we're going to start studying about God, and this is the reverse of every theology textbook I have. Okay? Every theology textbook I have starts with the Father. Well, most of them start with Revelation, with with Scripture, um, doctrine of Scripture, so we have Revelation, and then we have theology proper is what we call it, which is a study about God. And then we have some other things, and then finally down the road we start talking about Jesus Christ. Okay, That's when we talk about God. But if you want to talk about your relationship with God, It has to begin and it has to be immersed in Jesus Christ. And it is troubling how often I hear people's testimony and the name Jesus is never mentioned. But that is how we know God. And so we, now this is the, now here, I'm trying to tell you two different things at once. So for the theologian, he's going to come in this in a very cerebral way. That means by the brain and not the heart. And so he's going to come into this, here's all the information we know about God. And if I start there, I will always end up where they end up with a very impersonal God with all these eternal attributes that can't be limited. You will always end there if you begin there with information about God. But none of you got to know God that way. Praise God, you didn't get to know him that way. That you got to know him through Jesus Christ. And that's why very quickly after we teach children that God created the heavens and the earth, (coughs) we want them to know about Jesus. How fast do we want them to know about Jesus? What's the name of our youngest club in our world life clubs? Lambs. What is their motto? Jesus first. Jesus first, others next, yourself last, and that spells joy. Joy clubs. So, we have the little lambs. Why do we want them to know Jesus first? because that's a person they can relate to. He is the revealer of God. Now, I might be belaboring this, but I am going contrary to literally hundreds of years of theological education in seminaries that teach us all this information about God as though you can study that without a relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, you have preachers who aren't believers, who aren't in a relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. Yes? I wouldn't recommend. No, I do. It's okay. I do. I had to. Well, they start with your experience, and that's where I'm trying to get to. Your relationship with God um, is... Needs to be personal, that he's not something we study about. It's something we, we, we engage with. Someone. It's someone you're getting to know. All right, so let's say someone walks in, you've never met them, and, and they're, all right, let's, um, I'm going to pick on Scott because he's a single guy. We have a drop-dead gorgeous gal that's like 27 years old, walks in here, and Scott goes, wow. Okay, what does he need to know? What does he already know? <laughs> That's what Adam said about Eve. That's what Eve means, wow. <laughs> right? So, what does he need to know? What does he want to know? All right, he wants to know some data. Right? How old is she? Is she single? Um, is, she seeing, is she single, single? Like, seeing anyone? Okay. Um, what else? What What's the next level of information he wants? Yeah. How can I approach her? Basically, what kind of interest does she have? Things like that. The fact that she showed up at church has already got inside track there, and so he's gonna find out some information. And and being that he's Scott and and not an extrovert, um, he's gonna probably have Valerie go talk to her, right? You're going to mind that one. You want to mind her friends or friends of friends. or uh, So you want to get information, but you still haven't really met her, right? By the way, I did this with a gal that I saw across a gymnasium. Her name was Joyce Pycraft. And I said, who is that girl? And then I saw her serving at the food line. I was like, who is that girl with the incredible smile?" I mean, she's smiling all the time. Okay? And who is that girl? And it took a little while, but I finally got the information I wanted, but I saw and approached her. Right? Um, Did I know her? I knew some information about her. It wasn't until, by God's grace, um, a wonderful thing happened she got injured running, and I was already injured running, and we ended up sitting in the same jacuzzi tub for 30 minutes a day. That was incredible. Um, it was was it my knee and her hips, so she was sitting in it, and I was sitting beside it with my leg in there. And what do you do? Well, you just talk to him, right? And I was like, "Every night going home, thank you, Lord. Thank you Lord, for that injury. Not only mine, but hers too. so we can get to know each other. And now we can begin building a relationship. right? And so um, we have, and, and that was not every day it was because we didn't always time it perfectly, but I tried. <laughs> but we had that opportunity to be engaged. right Jesus Christ is the mechanism by which we engage God to get to know him. So Instead of starting with these, this information that tells us there's a God, in our personal relationship, we want to start in this study with Jesus Christ. Because he is the one by whom we get to know God. He is the revealer of God. And here's the problem. And, and you'll see it when I get to the next chapter. The problem with Jesus Christ is we say he's God, right? That's something we have to affirm to really be followers of Jesus Christ, Is that he's divine. If he's not deity, then he can't save you. He's just another guy that started a movement. Okay, And so um, there's something, that, so we have to recognize his deity. So here's what theologians do. And this is why we study theology proper at the front end and then Jesus Christ later. We say he's divine, and so we say everything we learned about God over here applies to Jesus, because he's God. Here's what we don't often do. Everything you learn about Jesus applies to God. Have you ever heard that? No, you haven't. And you know why you haven't heard that is because... We don't have a theological tool to do that, historically. In modern theology, we don't have a tool to use to teach people that everything we learn about Jesus is applicable to God. And yet, Jesus is how we get to know God. But everything I learn about Jesus I can't apply to God? Well, no, because he became flesh and God is a spirit, so that doesn't apply. Really? Well, Jesus was tempted and God can't be tempted. So we don't have a tool to make that reverse true. So we always start with God and say, everything we learn about God, that he's eternal, that he's holy, that he's sovereign, that he's loving, that he's just, all these things apply to Jesus. Because we want to make sure that we know that Jesus is God. Right? So we insist on that. That Jesus, all the, all the, all the power of God had, was in Jesus Christ. So the question is, if I get to know Jesus, do I get to know God? Yes. Yes exactly if you have seen me you've seen the father and remember that there was one was uh, just show us the father that'll be enough for us in the gospel of john uh chapter 14 he says have i <laughs> jesus is like have i not been with you taught you for these last three years if you've seen me you have seen the father what does that tell us that tells everything we learn about jesus should be applicable to the father and to the spirit, if the three are one. But our theologians don't have a mechanism to do that. Because they're like, well, no, God is a spirit. Can both be true? And this is called the both and apologetics instead of the either or. Um, But even though we give lip service to that, it's really hard to, to put it into practice because we've... Missed a a tool on the tool belt we're missing a very important tool and i believe the attribute of humility is that tool that we haven't had in our attribute list that god is humble and therefore um, when when jesus became sin for me on the cross um, how did that did that involve the father Yes, if Jesus is God, then somehow God became sin for you and for me. Well, how? He's holy, holy, holy. And as soon as there's one speck of sin attributed to God, um, even spiritual and not actual, that he didn't commit the sin, but he became your sin, um, then somehow doesn't that make him unholy? And this is the dilemma if we think holiness can never be confined? Can God confine his holiness is the question. Well, but if you study it this direction from information about it and we establish all these attributes and we even define God by them, then no, you can't work it the other direction. If, if every attribute has to be possessed to the nth degree, to the to the et- infinity then we have a problem because Jesus Christ broke those and so as we come to Jesus Christ this is the very first test of this attribute of humility and we have a very easy time with this was Jesus humbled what passage comes to mind immediately and became a servant where is that found Anybody know? Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. This is the paramount passage in regard to the study of Jesus Christ and how He, God became flesh. This is the passage. Turn with, their, with me there very quickly. I know it's 7 o'clock, and that's as far as we're going to get, but I want to introduce you to this so you can kind of study over it, and obviously we're going to go to Jesus as the study progresses. The next chapter is on Jesus. It's already written and rewritten and re-rewritten, so I'm ready to give it to you. Just It's going to take some printing. Philippians chapter 2. Here we go. You ready? Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort, love, any fellowship, spirit, any affection, mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God... "...did not consider Robert to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a ser- bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." All right, this is a very very special word used in this passage. It's not the word humbled. Um, well, it is. It's translated humbled. Um, but the word is kenosis. It's a very important Greek word. And in some of your, almost all of your Bibles, if you have marginal notes, uh, you'll see the word emptied himself. That he emptied himself. Uh, though will be in the, uh, you know, of no making himself, no taking forms, officer, and complete, be, found appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to the death. So, in these verses, we have this concept introduced that he humbled himself. Now, this is a theological problem, <coughs> and this passage alone has so many theologians doing so much gymnastics with language to say that God what is it that Jesus Christ emptied himself of that's the question what did he empty himself of and to what degree is Jesus still fully God while in the flesh is the question and how much is he fully God and to what degree we talk about and if you read through some of these people's writings, and I've read through a lot of them over the last, oh, 20 years, well, even going back in the seminary, um, their conclusions semantically, by doing these semantic jumbles, get to the point that he emptied himself of nothing. I mean, that's what it boils down to, that he emptied himself of nothing and and and... Emptying himself of nothing, I think I wrote in the book, uh, in the chapter was, uh, is somehow the pinnacle of expression and the example for us of what humility is. Is to give up nothing. Um, and somehow we've lost it. And again, the problem is, we come to a passage, and we even use a word. The very word that I'm using as an attribute of God, of humility. The, the concept is there, it's obvious. The translators have used the word humbled himself. And yet, we cannot then pick up this word humility and apply it consistently to God. We cannot apply it consistently to all of his attributes. And this is something we need to learn about attributes. Every attribute is subordinate to every other attribute. Okay? Yes. Um, Well, again the dilemma of of definition is very real. And that's why I started with that two weeks ago. Define God for me. Right? And so, we're, we're trying to define God intellectually with these passages and what they mean and all these big words. Instead of defining God from how we really know him, which is Jesus Christ. So let's start with my relation with Jesus Christ. He is God. And so therefore, as I get to know him, I'm really getting to know God. And one of the things Paul tells us is that you should be humble towards one another the way Jesus was humble towards you. This is a relational passage, isn't it? How to relate to each other. How to get along. How do you get along with God? Well, it wasn't by us saying, you got to meet my standards to get up here. No, it's by me, by God humbling himself to, to bring us to himself. And so Jesus becomes our example. Well, the word, the Greek word there, I mean, you cannot go through any any commentary, any theology textbook without this word being addressed. What does it mean? Now, we know what the Greek word means. What does it mean to be emptied of? Anybody know? Because theologians don't. What does it mean to be empty? How much do you still have? Huh? Yeah. Zero. You have zero left. You don't give up zero. To empty it, you are giving it all up. And this is an incredible principle that we Cannot accept in theological circles that Jesus Christ could give it all up for us. He emptied Himself. He gave it all up. He and and now here's the problem is the tenses here. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal, but made Himself of no reputation. That is, and, and taken in the form of bond servant and coming in the likeness of men so he emptied himself out, uh, so did he stop being God? This is the question. This is the challenge. If you say he emptied himself of all of his deity, then he's just a man. No. The term talks about self-possession. And this is why I have had so many struggles with so many people, and some of them have left the church because they wouldn't take the time to worked through this with me, um, and they asked me these questions. So here's some of the questions I've been challenged with. Do you think Jesus could sin? That's a question that is out there that is being used to measure what people believe about this word kenosis. Do you believe Jesus could have sinned? And if I say yes, they leave the church. They visit the church. Do you think Jesus could have sinned? I said, yeah, Jesus could have sinned. Um, you're a heretic. Okay? I mean, I'm not, not just strangers, I mean, people who have heard me preach for years. When they finally get to asking me that, um, and I give them my answer, which is to a hypothetical, it's not really a hypothetical question, because um, he didn't sin, and, and, and it took me meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting to, to somewhat resolve it. Uh, to the point that at least they didn't call me a heretic. Um, They weren't interested in being in a church, but um, to resolve that. And I mean, I was engaged on blog sites, um, Calvinistic blog sites. My name was named. I was under attack. I was the heretic because I simply answered that question that is their favorite question to address what you believe about kenosis. So we're going to address that next week. So I'll ask you, Could Jesus have sinned? Well, let's find out next week. Okay? But this is our passage, and then we're going to go very into the New Testament. I'll have the next chapter for you next week um, that we will be stepping into. Um, I remember I told you I'm going to try to do this relationally, not data-based, relationally-based. And the second byline of my book is, the forgotten attribute of God, and the theological problems it solves. Okay? And so, um, if Jesus is humble, is God humble? And I had pastors condemn me for that statement, that I believe God is humble. Pastors I knew really well who um, chastised me for that. Okay? Okay? Supporting pastors when I was a missionary. So this is a new position of mine, and it isn't um, a reactionary one. It is uh, something that I've been developing for decades. So I, I've got a lot of jump on you. Okay? So challenge yourself with that, and even ask a few people around, and if you know other people of other theological traditions, um, you'd be surprised in, in fundamentalism what their answer is to that question overwhelmingly, and, and we had multiple professional people uh, in ministry, that means missionaries or pastors, who disassociated with us over that question, including baptism and missions and evangelical Baptist missions and other mainstream Baptist organizations that people were engaged with us, so. Okay? So that's the question. That's the problem we're going to throw out there. Could Jesus have sinned? Was He that human? Or and did He stop being God then? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for all that you've done for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And and Lord, we um, just ask for your forgiveness that we don't use your name often enough in our thinking of salvation for we know it begins with you without your historical provision uh, without your revealing god to man throughout history we would not know you we would be in the dark and we would be hopeless so lord we thank you for walking with adam in the garden we thank you for appearing to men like abraham isaac jacob We thank you for sitting on top of a mountain and turning it black. And we thank you for coming as a baby to dwell with us, that we might know you. And Lord, we pray that you might uh, help us to grow in our knowledge of you and of the Father and the Spirit, because we have studied you better, in Christ Jesus' name.